Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, bringing you the latest market news, company headlines, and expert interviews to help you invest for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And a very warm welcome to you all. This is episode seven of, I nearly didn't say that correctly, episode seven of season six. And it's the first day of the new tax year. So, I mean, I I know most people are probably not going to be totally excited by that concept. But of course, what this means for investors is brand new allowances, both for your ISA, that £20,000 a year, and also your pensions as well. And we've got new limits we now have an annual limit of sixty thousand pounds that's fifty percent more than it was just a day ago and we have no lifetime limits on ices anymore either that starts today so exciting stuff in the investing world but aside from all of that let's have a little look at this week's podcast we've got laura Souter from aj bell on the pod She's the personal finance guru there, and she's going to be discussing everything possible that you need to know when it comes to investing for your children. In addition, in markets, we're going to have a little look at a banking crisis that's been averted, some positive UK data that's quite nice, some economic data from the UK that's actually good for once, and rises in the oil price and why that's been going on as well. We've also got some quick stories for you in companies. We're going to have a little look at Virgin Orbit, AstraZeneca, Tesla, Cineworld, and L'Oreal. So lots, lots packed into this episode. Please, of course, don't forget to subscribe and share the pod. Okay, let's start off in markets and our first story, which is around this potential for a banking crisis. It has been a positive fortnight, really, for this story. So last time, last pod, I was talking about the potential for the simmering banking crisis. We had the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and then we heard that Credit Suisse was going to be absorbed by UBS, an enormous Swiss bank been absorbed by another enormous Swiss bank. So there was sort of worry about contagion in in the system and whether this could lock up credit conditions. Well, we had some respite early on in the fortnight with news that this American bank, First Citizen Bank, which is actually one of America's largest family controlled banks, has bought $72 billion off SVB's assets for a discount price of $16.5 billion from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, so this entity that was holding the assets following the collapse of SVB. And it's calmed markets, really. Uh, It's sort of squelched these fears of this contagion that was sort of, that was hanging over investors and this worry that it could lock up credit conditions and exacerbate slowing economies. Uh, So that's really good. Also, there had been a bit of a flow of deposits from smaller lenders into bigger banks, which are better capitalized. And as people sort of worried about whether these smaller, smaller um, companies were going to go to the wall. Well, that seems to have slowed a little bit. So that's really that's quite good. And and the other positive is that it sort of it, it frees the deposit insurance fund to put out other potential fires as well. The lingering concern is that there could be just fires that we haven't seen really elsewhere. You know, as interest rates continue to rise, then it means other problems could pop up elsewhere. And one of the concerns could be, you know, in the property sector as well. 
so there's just this, you know, and you just never know. It's so complex. You never know where these things are going to pop up. It's why we heard from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, that they were warning about uncertainty and the need to be really vigilant uh, given the risks of, you know, financial instability, basically. In the UK, the Bank of England has said that UK banks seem pretty well capitalised. So there doesn't seem to be a problem there. So that was pretty good news for markets. I think moving on to our second story, that in particular lifted that news in particular from the first story, lifted banking stocks in the UK, which was quite nice for the FTSE. We've also had a raft of positive economic data here, which is just um, which has been quite quite nice. Really, we've seen um, you know, sort of better economic predictions. UK retail sales also rose in February, and supermarkets seem to be doing a bit better as people, you know, in the cost of living squeeze are cutting going out but increasing spending on being in. So that's been good. Other other data we heard a survey from Lloyd's. This business confidence barometer that pointed to a 10-month high in in business confidence and that's as as businesses start to see the the wage growth this wage pressure ease a little bit in comparison to last year so i think you know that's quite important wages are quite an important component of inflation so hopefully that that will start to feed through into the inflationary numbers at some point uh, I think for the moment, though, the Bank of England is just keeping that fight up against inflation. Investors are expecting another rate rise in May. Uh, but, you know, hopefully, whilst this, you know, of course, it hurts our cash flow. I've just seen my mortgage go up. Uh, it has it has strengthened the pound. And, you know, the fact that the pound was quite weak, that was importing a lot of inflation. So hopefully that starts to reduce that pressure a little bit as well. So hopefully all of this, all of this kind of points to, you know, hopefully inflation starting to get better soon. Uh, so, you know, interesting stuff there. And the final little story is oil, really. So we've seen oil price surge a little bit over the past fortnight. It's gone from about 70 odd dollars a barrel up to 85 odd dollars a barrel. So some rises there. And that's it sort of began because of the fact that, you know, concerns in the banking sector were being soothed. Plus, you know, higher demand from China following the loosening of their COVID restrictions this year. And then this ruling that Turkey was sort of breaching pipeline agreements with Iraq. So that sort of had some supply uh, issues there, which, of course, is, is a boost to the price. Then we heard that OPEC, the oil cartel, really, was going to cut production, which was a surprise. You know, people didn't really expect that. And that did send the oil price higher as well. And there's concerns that, you know, at $100 a barrel, that could, you know, really start to seriously stoke inflation once more. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure um, some frustration at OPEC's move there really to cut production. But nonetheless, that's that's why we've seen the oil price rise. All told, over the fortnight, the S&P 500 is up 3.25% of 4,077 points. The FTSE 100 is up 3.16% to 7,736 points. The stock 600 is up 2.86% to 459 points. And the Shanghai Composite is up 0.78% to 3,312 points. Just before we get on to companies, just to point out a little bit of stuff. I mean, we've been doing, we did a campaign with Alliance Trust quite 
recently so that's added uh, some interesting stuff to our youtube channel so please go there and check it out we've got this five part shorts mini series really that looks at the traits of isa millionaires we have got our interview of course with lord lee and myron jobson which is up there just in just the interview as well so you can go and have a look at the filming of that too and we've got the cash ices versus stocks and shares ices tutorial that i did as well uh, which is also up on the channel so please go and give that a little look let me know what you think also just in terms of our blog i i last week i wrote about some some gave some pension tax tips so please go and give that a read as well if you're interested Okay, let's get on to some headlines with companies. I'm going to start with Virgin Orbit. So this is a spin-off of Mr. Branson's Virgin Galactic, uh, Virgin Orbit. And it, it is basically its job is to ping satellites into space from, the, from a modified Boeing 747. It's unfortunately collapsed into bankruptcy following the failure to secure some fresh investment. So that, was, that must be quite frustrating uh it had had this failed uh launch earlier in the year so uh, i'm sure that's a big part of it as well uh and it the the big shame i think is 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 just the uk's sort of reputation for being able to grow sort of high octane and risky innovative businesses is it's you know there's another dent in that reputation so uh that's quite quite frustrating it's just sort of showing that this this deep pool of capital that really america is is very good at providing is is just not really there in the uk market so shame there tesla's up next the company reported that it delivered 422,875 cars in quarter one of this year which is an increase of 36 percent year on year and four percent from the previous quarter so good news there for the company and it's come really as it's cut prices in order to boost demand amid the inflationary squeeze but also as competition rises really in the electric car space particularly from China. So good news for Tesla there. AstraZeneca, they have had some positive news with trials for a drug that targets ovarian cancer. They uh, produced some results that were st statistically significant. And, you know, this is great news. Ovarian cancer is often diagnosed quite late on and it's pretty nasty. You know, most people die within five years. So this is, uh, you know, another another great drug to add to the armory against, uh, you know, the, the terrible scourge of cancer and the fact that it, it's going to affect one in two of us. So uh, good news from from this very old British institution, really. Cineworld. So this was a cinema chain that's been having lots of problems. It's attempting to exit bankruptcy through a bid in order to raise $3.2 billion. Pretty tough gig, though, for the company. I mean, it's got this enormous footprint of cinemas, and we're seeing this big shift, really, in consumer habits over the cinematic experience as streaming platforms have really challenged that you know i think i'm sure many of us can understand you know we love going to the cinema but you're just far less compelled to go when you've got so much at home and as tech here means that you can see it in very high quality on enormous tvs as well it just means that less and less of us are going to the cinematic uh, for the cinematic experience and 
you know particularly in the in the midst of a cost of living squeeze so yeah we'll see if it manages to convince some some uh, fresh shareholders in that sense final story l'oreal so the cosmetic giant has bought an australian cult favorite called aesop in order to bolster its skincare offering uh it's pretty pretty big news for the company really it's been a little while since its management team have really spent so much money on an acquisition it's paid two and a half billion dollars for it and you know it's a bit of a punt into luxury really for for this team so i'm sure they'll be eager to see that it that it pays off and um you know does does wonders for their reputation okay let's get on to our interview with laura Suter. Hello all and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast and to our viewers on YouTube. Today we're going to be giving you hopefully a comprehensive guide into saving and investing for your children. It's certainly a popular topic. We get a lot of questions around this and there's definitely some pitfalls to avoid as well as some super tax efficient ways of doing it too. So from the UK's third largest DIY investing platform, AJ Bell, we have back on the pod, Laura Souter, Head of Personal Finance. Laura, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me today. Laura, should we start by painting a little bit of a picture? I'm kind of thinking, you know, why do you think, particularly today especially, it's important to build a nest egg for your children? I just think costs are rising so much and everyone's feeling that, but the cost of the big things that your kids are going to have to face in the future are getting so much higher. So if we think about university fees or higher education fees, they're getting so much larger. Things like getting on the house housing ladder, um, being able to afford that deposit, that's now a huge amount of money. So any work that parents can do while their kids are young to build up some of those savings pots can really give them just more options in life when they turn 18. Um, and they will have this pot of money that they can use and whether they decide to go on a great gap year around the world or more frugally <laughs> and sensibly put it towards a house deposit. I think it's just great to be able to give your kids those options if you've got a bit of spare cash you can put away. Now, I mean, you, you have a, a, a young daughter, don't you? I mean, were these the kind of worries that you felt when when she came along? Yeah, and I think obviously I come from the point of view of a bit more financially savage than the average person, I would assume, I would hope anyway. Um, but I was very keen to very early on start putting a little bit away each month and build up those savings. And I think getting into that savings habit, going through the hassle of setting up the account early on, um, getting all of that out of the way. So I actually did it while I was on maternity leave, probably trapped under her while she napped on me um I use some of that time uh well and I think it's just really important to get into that habit early on and then it almost becomes a bit like a bill that comes out of your account it's that small amount of money each month that comes out and you almost don't even notice it but hopefully it'll give her some amount of money in the future to to do with what she wishes okay so we could just go and open a bank account start stuffing some money into it what is the problem with doing this um, there's quite a few problems, to be honest. So I'll I'll list a couple. The first is inflation is your big issue there. So if you're just putting money into a bank account and you're saving it into cash, everyone has become all too aware of the impact of inflation. Um, and over a really long period, so say when you're starting, when your child is very young um, and and you're going to be keeping that money saved until they're 18, um, that's a very long period for inflation to eat away at it. So it's not really the best place for long-term savings. Um, 
And I think also the other thing that you need to be aware of is cash rates will often drop. So um, banks are very keen to get parents to open accounts for children because that's a long term account where the money's going to sit there for a long time. But they're quite sneaky about offering you a great rate initially and then cutting it after a year or two, meaning that if you don't keep track of it, your money is then not only earning less than inflation, but actually probably earning nothing or very little. So it requires a bit more monitoring than lots of people think. They think just open a bank account, stuff some cash in, and then you can forget about it. Um, the other aspect is tax, which no one gets particularly excited about. But um, if you save a decent pot for your child, it could actually end up having a tax implication for you. So once your child earns £100 of interest or more in a year, then it's taxed as though it's the parent's interest. And it's a weird tax rule. And it's essentially meant to stop parents funneling all of their savings into account under their children's name to avoid tax. Um, but what it means at the moment is that if you've got uh, an account paying about 4%, um, once you've built up about £2,500 in there, then you'll hit that £100 limit. And then all of that interest is taxed as though it's your own. So if you've gone over your own savings tax-free limits, then you'll face a tax bill for that. So this is, so in terms of yourself as the personal savings allowance, if you're a basic rate payer, that means if you earn interest of more than £1,000, you'll start getting taxed on that. For higher rates, it's 500. For additional rate, it, it's then zero. So if, if your child's account earns more than £100 in interest, then it will count towards that, that allowance, basically. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is it's actually all of that interest then counts. Once you hit the £100 threshold, that whole £100 or whatever it is, um, £200, £300, counts towards your limit. It's not just that you get the first £100 tax-free and then anything over that counts. So it can end up with a, a decent tax hill. And it's just one of those things where you'll be paying tax where you don't need to because there's other accounts that would protect you from that. And it gives you the hassle of filling out a tax return, which uh, no one wants. And, but it's it's not that doesn't apply to family and friends, am I right? Well, outside of the parents. Exactly. So it's it's a really sneaky and weird tax rule. And so it only applies to money gifted by parents. And actually, that £100 limit is per child per parent as well. Um, so there are two things you can do to get around it if you didn't want to use one of the tax efficient accounts. One is to get grandparents or family or friends to contribute to the accounts because money paid in by then and interest earned on the money paid in by them um, doesn't count towards the limit. But also you should make sure that the money that you're gifting your child in this account comes equally from each parent. If just one parent contributes that full amount, then you'd hit that £100 limit um, sooner than if it came 50-50 from each parent. Okay, so that is if you wanted to do that. But broadly, as you've sort of pointed out, you've got quite a lot of time on your hands. You, you've got inflation that's that's eating away at that cash because even though interest rates have been rising, they look more attractive, inflation is still way higher. So your real rate is still negative. And as you say, the bank rates can also drop over time. So really, you should be thinking about investing. What kind of investments would you say are appropriate well do you agree with that and also you know if you do what kind of investments would you say are appropriate 
So yeah, 100% agree with that if you're starting when your child is young. So when we think about investing, we think that it should be for five years or more. So if you're a bit more of a late starter to saving for your child, which um, there are lots of costs early on in a child's life. So lots of parents might find that they don't have the spare cash until their child is a bit older. Then you might want to stick to cash. So if it's going to be kind of five years until they reach 18, you're probably better off um, sticking to cash. But anything longer than that, definitely investing is um, much better for that kind of time horizon. And if you think if you're starting from birth, you could have 18 years where that money could be invested, which is a great time horizon for investing and to kind of ride out the ups and downs of markets. Um, but in terms of the type of investment, that really does come down to the individual as well. So there's kind of two schools of thought. Um, one school of thought is, okay, well, I've got 18 years where this money's going to be tied up for. That's a really long time period. I can take loads of risk because over that time period, I hope that that will generate higher returns. The other mindset is this is the money for my child's future. I really don't want to take too much risk with it. I don't want to risk that this money that I'm paying in now actually isn't going to um, get those high returns as I want. And I, and I would feel uncomfortable if it had a large drop in value if markets fell. And so I think it's really what you personally feel comfortable with. This shouldn't be, you shouldn't be investing in things that kind of keep you awake at night, worrying about the impact it's going to have on your child's financial future. Um, and likewise, if you invest in something that's quite risky and does have those kind of big ups and downs, and you think that you might be the type of person that kind of panics and sells out of it um, during that period, then that shouldn't be for you. So it's kind of down to your individual preferences. Um, that said, you could take a kind of split approach. So you could decide, okay, I'm going to put all of it in investments, but I'm going to have the biggest chunk of it in quite a broad equity tracker or kind of a broad fund that gives me exposure to um, lots of different markets and is well diversified. And then I'm going to have a little portion of it that's in kind of a racier thing and a thing where I feel comfortable taking a bit more risk and I might give it an extra boost um, of returns. Or likewise, you could decide you want to have much less risk in, in the overall pot of money, keep some in cash and then invest the rest. It really comes down to kind of your own attitudes to investing and to risk, really. You know, when we say sort of taking some risk, we mean, you know, stock market risk. It, it, it's, you know, you should be given that length of time, equities, you know, investing in shares is probably a great idea. And would you say diversified funds rather than individual shares? Or is that again, very much down to that risk propensity that you might have that you were describing? It's very much down to the individual. Yeah, I think it's kind of down to your, you're right, your, your, the person's risk level, but also the amount of time that they have to spend on this. If you're investing directly in stocks, then you're going to need to take a bit more time to kind of research and monitor the portfolio, um, look at the points where maybe you should sell out, have a much more coherent kind of research and strategy behind it. And for lots of parents, it might be that they just don't have that time to spare, in which case you're probably far better outsourcing it to a fund manager, whether that's an active or passive fund um, and kind of taking a bit more of a hands off approach. So it depends kind of on your risk tolerance, your level of experience with investing, but also the spare time and enthusiasm that you have to put into this. If you want something where you can just set it up to go out monthly, invest in the same fund and you don't have to worry about it too much, you check in on it a couple of times a year, then individual stocks are not the route for you.
And I suppose the other thing as well is, you know, given, as you say, when you start out, you've got 18 years. The other thing you could do is, is, is run down the amount of risk that you're taking. So as you get closer to that 18th birthday, you could start to sell some of those riskier investments and start putting it into safer stuff like bonds. Is, is, is that a good idea? Yeah, so that's the kind of strategy that we see people use as they near retirement. And it's a for a similar purpose. It's you're dialing down the risk level because you know that you're going to need to access that money sooner. And I think that's a sensible strategy, but it's also something where you should probably involve your child in some of those discussions as it gets closer to their 18th birthday. It might be that they decide that they want to use that pot of money to save for a house deposit. And actually, they're not planning on buying a home for another five years, in which case you wouldn't need to dial down that risk. Conversely, they might want to use it to buy a car or to pay for university, in which case they would need it at age 18. And so you might need to be more aware of of how much risk there is in that portfolio come their 18th birthday. Um, so I think it's opening that discussion up with your kids. And I think some parents might think, oh, I don't want my teenager to know that there's this pot of money sitting waiting for them. But it's actually a really great way to build up financial education in your kids, to teach them about investing and saving. And you can say, look, I set this up when you were a baby. I've put away this amount of money and it's grown to this. And isn't that amazing? And kind of use it as a financial education tool rather than being worried that they're just going to see this as a pot of money that they can splurge on their 18th birthday I mean I think that's a fantastic point you make there because I would have thought if they were suddenly surprised on their 18th birthday with a large pot of money that that would be a, a, a riskier strategy in terms of them you know um, not really understanding its its purpose maybe and, and how important it might be for their futures so having a sort of run up towards that that uh, that that time and as you say using it as a runway of education um, is a is a really fantastic point there. Yeah, and I think you could even um, you could even get them involved in making some of the investment decisions. So I think a good way of engaging, you know, kids and, and teenagers, and you can even start this from quite young, is to teach them about investing through their own investments. So, OK, they love Disney films and they love the Disney franchise and they watch Disney Plus on TV. So show them that there's Disney shares that they could buy. Now, I'm not saying you should let your entire investment strategy be run by a seven year old, but it's you could buy one Disney share and you could show them how that then rises and falls in value. And it's a great way of them realizing how investment is linked to real world things. So they watch a Disney film and actually they're invested in that company that makes it. How much do you reckon you need to contribute for a decent pot? Now, I mean, <laughs> I say decent pot, that is different to different people, of course. But I don't know, I don't know if you have any figures around this, but, you know, how much would you say is, is a decent amount to contribute? So I think some people will go at this from the point of view of I've got X amount spare each month and that's the amount I can afford to put away um, after I've dealt with my own kind of savings and investments and bills and all of those things. Um, and they'll start from that point of view. Other people will have a target amount of money in mind that they might want to reach. Um, so things like you might want to reach what you think is a reasonable house deposit or the amount of money that it might take for further education. Um, so it depends kind of different ways and if you have that specific sum in mind there's lots of really great calculators online that you can use and kind of work back and say what your time period is and it'll tell you how much you need to invest but for some examples if you even if you just had 50 pounds a month to put away and you started from 
um, when your child was born up to their 18th birthday, that would give them a pot worth £16,000. So it's a decent amount of money to hand an 18-year-old. I would have been very pleased with that at 18. Um, so that's assuming 4% returns a year after any charges. So um, that's kind of assuming you're investing it. Um, at the other end of the scale, so the amount that you can put away in a junior ISA account, so tax-efficient account for kids, is £9,000 a year. If you were able to put away that full £9,000 every year, so we're talking the much kind of wealthier end of the market here, that would give them a pot worth £223,000 on their 18th birthday, which... Um, I would be even more pleased with on my 18th birthday than the 16 grand. Um, but I think they, those kind of figures show to hi highlight that even just putting away a little amount each month can really add up to a decent pot for your kids. Well, perfect point then to talk about the junior ISA. You know, do you want to explain just a bit about their features and why they're really a, a, a must-use kind of thing for investing for children? Yeah, so they work exactly the same as a as a normal ISA account in that they have very tax efficient elements to them. So any of your gains are tax free. And when your child comes to withdraw the money, they would withdraw it tax free as well, um, which if you've built up a significant pot for them is um, a really great feature as well. You can pay in up to £9,000 a year, which is a very generous um, limit. It used to be much lower. And then a few years ago, it had this kind of bumper increase. So that should cover most parents kind of savings needs for their children. Um, the money is tied up until the child is 18, um, and at which point it becomes theirs to um, decide what they want to do with. It can roll over into an adult ISA account, and so you just keep those tax benefits there, um, and it rolls over into that ISA account with the higher ISA limit that adult ISAs um, benefit from. Um, and your child could choose to carry on investing or they could withdraw that money. Um, but there's also a big investment choice if you so you can either have a cash junior ISA or you can have a stocks and shares junior ISA. But um, those stocks and shares junior ISAs have much wider investment choice than things like child trust funds, which people um, might have for their kids. Um, they'd be for older kids now, but um, much broader investment choice, essentially the same investment choice that you would have in your own ISA. And you, I mean, do you think that the the tax implication, the efficiency of taxes there makes a big difference to your returns over time? Yeah, so I think it would do. And particularly when they come to withdraw that money, they could also do things um, like roll some of it over into a lifetime ISA, which I'm sure you've talked about before. But I mean, a great savings vehicle for um if you're saving for your first home. Um, so I think, yeah, to keep it within that that kind of ISA wrapper, as it's called, um, you may as well save that tax on it rather than that money going to the tax man. And the benefit of that each year um, will help to boost the portfolio over a longer period of time. And of course, it's £9,000 for each child as well. And yeah. none of this touches your own contributions as well. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. That's completely separate to your own ISA allowance. And then finally, there is the junior SIP. So there's a private pension that you can set up for your children as well. How do these work? Yeah, it feels like the longest term investment ever, doesn't it? If you were going to set this up when your child was first born. Uh, but yeah, you can have a pension for your child. And even though they're not a taxpayer, they can benefit from tax relief from the government. So what it means is you can pay in up to £2,880 in a year. The government will then top that up with tax relief to £3,600. Um, and you get the same great tax perks as an adult SIP. So um, your investments will grow tax-free. Um, 
but also the account is locked up so you can't make any withdrawals until retirement age currently that's 55 but we know that it's rising at the moment and if you're saving for a child then you've got to expect that it's going to be even higher by the time they come to retire so yeah very long-term option but the fact that you would have such a long time for the money to grow and compound over time um, and also you get the perk of that government free money on top does make it quite attractive i would say it's not a first port of call for most people when they're coming to save for their kids they're much more focused on um you know the junior isa and saving up until their kids turn 18. it's quite a popular option with grandparents who want to who have spare cash and they want to put it away for the longer term or for parents who've maybe maxed out that junior isa um, allowance and they want another tax efficient option for their kids but I thought it would be interesting to look at so if you made one year's worth of contributions when your child was first mm. born you didn't make any further contributions and you just left it to grow at four percent a year then that one contribution worth two thousand eight hundred and eighty pounds would actually grow to thirty eight thousand pounds by the time your child was 60. So if you did find yourself with a small windfall one year and you wanted to carry out that experiment, it's actually because of the benefit of compounding over such a long period of time, a small contribution by you actually equates to a lot of money for your kid. Yeah, but the problem is, Laura, where inflation is at the moment, that'll probably buy you a pint of milk um, by the time that they get to retirement. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> but I mean, you're absolutely, I mean, I mean, 60 years of not only growth but also the compounding the wonders that are compounding really hammers home that point really about time in the markets really yeah exactly and so I think you know for grandparents who've got a bit of spare money or if you have a bit of a windfall in one year and you want to put some money away you can and you don't have to put that full 2,880 pounds and you can put less in if you wanted to on that note Laura Souter thanks very much thank you well, a very big thank you once again to Laura Souter from AJ Bell. Really interesting and important topic for young parents. Of course, if you've got any questions about investing for your children, just email me at marcus at stepstoinvesting.com. And please don't forget to subscribe and check out the new content on the YouTube channel. Upcoming will be our early bird campaign where through a new set of videos and an article written by our investment journalist Cherry Reynard and a new podcast, we're going to be exploring a number of reasons why you want to be getting going as early as you possibly can with investing in the new tax year with your, with your new allowances. So more on that next time. Until then, goodbye.